Hello and welcome to a CM Murray podcast on non-disclosure agreements. So I am Sarah Chilton, a partner at CM Murray, and I'm joined by Beth Hale, our general counsel and a partner at CM Murray. And we're going to talk today about non-disclosure agreements and in particular the limitations of those types of agreements when they are used, um, when they might be used legitimately, when they might be used in more questionable ways. And we're also going to touch on the proposed changes to the law which have been put forward by the Women and Equality Select Committee who published their report on this issue following a consultation that has taken place throughout 2019. So Beth, to kick us off, do you want to just talk us through what the current law is on this um, and let's focus on that so that people are clear we're talking about what the law is at present before we move on to what the recommendations are and initially shall we just talk about what these types of agreements are? Yeah, so I think for, for employment lawyers, um, NDA is a relatively new term, actually. What the kind of clauses we're talking about have always been known by employment lawyers, really, as confidentiality clauses and contained within an agreement settling claims at the end of employment. There were also commonly and routinely confidentiality provisions in employment contracts, which seek to prevent ordinarily um, disclosure of commercial information and and company data and those are less controversial so the ones that have really been the subject of the controversy and the press attention have been confidentiality provisions in settlement agreements particularly in sexual harassment Mm. cases but also in other discrimination type claims because you would also get a non-disclosure agreement as a possible standalone document for example if parties are two commercial parties are thinking about entering into some sort of negotiation for a contract they might um, one might ask the other one to enter into a non-disclosure agreement, particularly if that negotiation might involve disclosure of sensitive commercial data or formulas or things like that. So they happen Absolutely. in a wide variety yeah. of circumstances. And those are not, you know, I think you, know, yeah. you can have a discussion about those, but they're not controversial yeah. in the same way and for the same reasons. Yeah. And the particular reason that um, NDAs in settlement agreements are controversial or have become controversial is the sort of imbalance of power between mm. employer and employee. And that's why... That's why I think there's been so much um, discussion around them. And there's also been a concern expressed by many people, and it's also expressed in particular in the recent report by the Women and Equalities Committee, which I mentioned, around the fact that they're being used to, one, cover up wrongdoing, but also that they're being used effectively to allow people to avoid investigating complaints of harassment and discrimination. So I think that's the other concern, is that yeah, so they're being concealing used, culture. Absolutely. And particularly in relation to concealing repeated behaviour, so where you have someone who is uh, a sort of serial harasser, mm-hmm. as it were, that that that, that behaviour is being allowed to continue yeah. by the continued entering into of, of NDAs. It's probably important to mention at this stage that they are not just used in settlement agreements dealing with harassment and discrimination claims. They are used, in fact, in we would say almost all settlement agreements that are entered into in an employment context. So that is all agreements that are used to settle employment claims, so including claims such as unfair dismissal, whistleblowing, discrimination, harassment. Redundancy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very unusual to see a settlement agreement without any confidentiality provision in there. Even if that confidentiality provision only extends to the, The the agreement, the terms of the agreement, the the money changing hands, mm. essentially. And so the sort of background to it is that settlement agreements are a sort of statutory document that you have to have a formal settlement agreement in order to settle certain statutory claims, 
which includes unfair dismissal, also includes discrimination mm-hmm. and harassment. And there hasn't been the same concern around claims such as unfair dismissal and confidentiality provisions around those types of claims as there have been around discrimination and harassment. No, because the, I think that because they're seeking in some ways to prevent disclosure of what might be unlawful mm-hmm. behaviour. Yeah. Um, and in terms of who benefits from a non-disclosure agreement in that context, so in the settlement agreement context, it's obvious that the employer may benefit from it, particularly if there's been, say, an allegation of harassment. The employer itself might benefit, but also the potential perpetrator might benefit. Yeah. But is there a circumstance in which the person who has brought the complaint, so that may be the victim or that may be a bystander, is there a circumstance in which that person may also benefit from an NDA? Yeah, I think there are certainly those circumstances. And I think it's quite difficult because of the imbalance of power to sort of say, to, to always judge that. But I think there are certainly circumstances where the individual's concerned, so that someone who's brought the complaint or someone who's been the victim of harassment, actually wants confidentiality, wants their identity to be protected, wants to be able to move on find a new job and just get on with their lives without having to, for example, go through the um, stress and cost of tribunal proceedings mm. and things like that. So I think there are circumstances in which they can be beneficial and can, and, and can be used as a sort of bargaining um, chip in a negotiation by an individual as well as by, a, by an employer. Yeah. And of course, there have been calls for an outright ban on NDAs. It doesn't seem that that's what the recommendations we have seen recently propose Uh, but one of the things that's come out alongside that over the last few months are examples of where people have been using NDAs inappropriately so for example they've been using them to cover up potential criminal offences and I suppose that comes another linked topic into that which is that a lot of sexual harassment allegations may in fact be criminal allegations but that in fact a lot of employers and victims in fact and also alleged perpetrators don't realise that the behaviour might be criminal so there's been a concern that NDAs have been used to cover up criminal conduct um, and And to prevent people reporting criminal conduct to the police police. yeah which would obviously pervert the course of justice um, which in itself would be an offence so there are clearly circumstances in which NDAs have been used up until now and probably still being used in in which those NDAs would probably not be enforceable if people knew about it Um, so should we just chat about in what circumstances will an NDA not work well I think it wouldn't work an NDA wouldn't work to prevent someone from reporting a crime to the police um, even if it expressly says that it does I think you you can't prevent someone from reporting a crime to the police and that, that as you say, would be potentially perverting the course of justice. So I think the, the issue is that people aren't aware of that. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's been talked about quite a lot in the NDA discussion is sort of the chilling effect of NDAs and how someone who's signing one doesn't know what the limitations are, might not understand what the limitations are, and so therefore might genuinely think they can't report it to mm-hmm. the police or they can't, for example, go to a regulator if they're in a regulated um industry and it was quite chilling in fact a good word to to hear evidence given to the women equality select committee in their inquiry into sexual harassment in the workplace from someone who was one of the witnesses there to the effect that they thought that if they breached their nda they would go to prison yeah and of course an nda would in almost never a breach of an NDA would almost never result in someone going to prison the reason I say almost never is because as a typical lawyer I don't want to make a (laughs) categoric statement that might be incorrect in a tiny tiny proportion of cases but the reason I say that is because if someone was to breach an NDA or was to threaten to breach an NDA and then the 
other party to the NDA sought an injunction and, and was successful in getting an injunction to enforce that non-disclosure agreement, and then the injunction was breached, then there are circumstances in which a penal notice would be placed on the injunction and a breach of that could result in a penal sanction. But we are talking very unusual situations in this context. It's not very common at all for that to happen. I just say that for completeness. But um, but it was really worrying to hear that people thought that simply, say, for example, speaking to your doctor about the contents of your settlement agreement or about the behaviour that led to you having a settlement agreement may mean that you could go to jail if, if that's what you did. And of course, that's not the case so it was quite scary to think that and so I think that's one of the key problems that we've had with NDAs up until now Um, one is that they're used sometimes inappropriately and they sometimes seek to do things that they shouldn't but the other is that even if they don't or even if those clauses don't work that's only helpful if people actually know that so if someone signs an NDA and thinks it can stop them going to the police or thinks it can stop them going to regulator it's all very well for someone else to come along and say well it just it can't do that but if that person doesn't know that doesn't really help that person at all. Yeah, that's, and, and the other sort of big exclusion from NDAs, which they, which NDAs in a settlement agreement can't prevent, is whistleblowing. So they can't prevent them making a disclosure in the public interest in accordance with the whistleblowing regime. And the problem with that exemption is that actually the whistleblowing regime is pretty complicated. Mm. Um, it's hard to judge whether it is, you know, the, there are all the sort of hurdles people have to jump to get to make it a protected disclosure in those circumstances and and also um while a lot of settlement agreements have traditionally and have and and in some sectors they're required to but even but they they might include that exemption so they might say you're not prevented from making a protected disclosure that that exemption is often worded in quite a legal way and just says you're not prevented from making a disclosure under section Mm -hmm. 43j of the employment rights act 1996 now most people wouldn't know what, does that mean? <laughs> what that means so you know i think it that there there is has been an issue i think with the sort of clarity around the meaning of those exemptions insofar as they're included at all and of course it's not just the legal limitations that we've spoken about so the prevention of reporting a crime a protected disclosure a regulatory reporting but even if someone was to comply with all those legal requirements in an NDA, there are other things that people drafting those should be mindful of, both employers and lawyers, which are ethical considerations. So there may be a situation in which something strictly is legal, but you would not want that to be in a non-disclosure agreement for ethical reasons. Yeah, and I think that does that partly comes back to the sort of chilling effect I spoke about earlier, but also um, I think you know, there are things like allowing people to discuss things with their medical professional, with a therapist, with a doctor, or indeed with their family allowing people to have someone within their family who they can speak to even if that is prescribed quite tightly in the agreement um it you know it's important to be in in an nda but also what you want to enforce and how tight you want to be and actually you know is it ethically acceptable to make someone feel that they are totally isolated and cannot Mm. talk to anyone ever about the terms of their um terms of the termination of their employment and also about a topic which presumably is quite upsetting and distressing if it's a harassment claim for example yes. so often as you say it's not just about the settlement terms that they need to keep it confidential they also need to keep it confidential what led to the settlement mm. and putting someone in on an island in terms of 
fact that they can't talk to anyone about that might be really damaging for that person's yeah, well-being. Absolutely. And they might not realise that at the time they're signing up to the agreement. Yeah. So they might say, yes, fine, I'm happy to keep it all confidential. But, you know, they aren't yet aware, because it's mm. happened so recently, of the sort of what might, you know, what, what they might feel like in, in the future about... Yeah. ..in terms of trauma. And There's also that more broad ethical obligation on those drafting agreements, in particular lawyers, not to put things in that they know to be unenforceable. So there are circumstances that where you see an NDA drafted and it may not say you can report this to the police or you can report this to the regulator or it may try and do things in you know other more clever ways which really through the back door seek to prevent disclosures and that person drafting that if they are a lawyer or well experienced in these types of matters she'd know that that's not going to work but it's you know often an argument put forward is well if it's unenforceable, why do you have a problem signing it? Well, that's not that's not ethical to put something in yeah. that you know to and be if unenforceable. And for solicitors drafting NDAs, there, there's obviously there are particular ethical considerations, um, and those are set out pretty clearly in a warning notice that the SRA published last year in March 2018. Um, and yeah, the, the key thing coming out of that is that you shouldn't be putting in clauses which are unenforceable. Mm. Um, and which give the impression to individuals signing agreements that they can't do things which legally they can. Yeah. Uh, I think that's really important. And just yeah. thinking about you know, the ethics of every single clause that you're putting in. Yeah. And also, really importantly, and I think we're going to come on to talk about this, really importantly, looking beyond just the confidentiality provision, looking at what other provisions might be involved. So yeah. think about um, the clawback provision, think about the warranties in the agreement, and think about a clause which might say that you're not allowed to make derogatory comments about the mm. employer and how those all tie in with mm. the potential carve-outs from the NDA that we've talked about a bit. Yeah, and so how those clauses work in practice, the um, one that we typically see in almost every settlement agreement is something that we would call a non-disparaging comments clause or a non-derogatory comments clause, and it essentially says you will not make any disparaging or derogatory comments about the employer or certain individuals within the employer's organisation. Um, it might go on to then say that will damage or will be likely to damage the employer's reputation. But you can see from that type of wording that that may also limit what that person may or may not be able to discuss more broadly about the circumstances that led to the claim being raised or threatened or or the tribunal action that they might be settling. That's a sort of quite obvious limitation on what someone can and can't say. A slightly more subtle one is where someone might put into a confidentiality clause or might put into an agreement more broadly, um, as you mentioned, a clawback provision, which basically often comes at the end of an agreement. So you might have the confidentiality clause thrown in somewhere at the be- in the middle, and then you might get to the end and there might be a catch-all clause that says, if you breach any of the terms of this agreement, we will claw back all the money we've ever paid to you. And clearly that will have an impact on that person's willingness or not to speak out about something. And even if that clause is unenforceable, the original confidentiality clause, for example, that clawback clause might be enough of a deterrent to stop that person from speaking out. And I think when people are drafting, they just need to think about how those things all hang together. The other one that you flagged, which are warranty provisions, they work by essentially saying, I warrant... So basically, I promise that I have not done X, Y, and Z, or I don't know X, Y, and Z. And one example might be that in the confidentiality clause, you say uh, you agree not th- that you won't tell anyone anything about this, but you are not prevented from reporting anything to the police. 
you then might be asked to sign a statement that says, I warrant that I don't know of anything that's reportable to the police. So you are effectively, if you then go and report something to the police... And it's backed up by a clawback provision. Yeah, breaching your warranty. You're, you're breaching your warranty. And, th- and putting your money that you've just been paid on the line. Yeah. And actually we would say that... That that's is an unenforceable NDA un- by the back door, Yes, exactly. But it, it's how we kind of see that just tackling the NDA as, as a clause and just looking at that in isolation is not enough. I think lawyers need to be quite think quite carefully about including clawback provisions yeah i'm just thinking about which if you are including a clawback thinking about which clauses it's tied to so perhaps removing any link from the breach of confidentiality might help with the sort of ethical issues around the nda yeah um but and think about whether you want to include a clawback at all yeah there's a whole other debate which we won't get into in this podcast about whether a clawback clause is a penalty clause or not a penalty clause and and if it is a penalty clause whether that is unenforceable anyway but that's a different debate a whole different Um, podcast yeah (laughs) penalty clauses um that we might still never get to the answer at the end (laughs) Um, supreme court found it quite difficult i feel better about that then (laughs) Uh, so moving on then so that's the law as it stands at the moment so it is quite clear what ndas can and can't do i think what's unclear is in every single nda that nda might not be clear as to what can and can't be done and there's no requirement at the moment certainly for any employee to be specifically advised on the terms of that nda to a certain level obviously most employees will receive advice on that settlement agreement because they have to for that agreement to validly waive any of their statutory employment claims but there will be circumstances in which an agreement might not require advice in which people will sign up to NDAs in other contexts. Yeah. So, for example, in a COT3 agreement, which is an agreement negotiated yes. by by an ACAS conciliator, there's no requirement there for yes. an employee to take legal advice. Yeah. And so there could be an NDA in that, which in which no legal yeah. advice has been taken at all. Yeah. Fundamentally, most people can't, from the NDA itself, fully understand what they can and can't do from that document. Clarity is the real key, issue. isn't it? I think there was a... <laughs> That there is a lack of clarity, even for lawyers, around the public interest test and what, yes, no, what dis- where disclosures, even even Very beyond different. the whistleblowing um, regime, just sort of think about how what where disclosures might be able to be made in the public interest and what that means. I think the law is very blurry mm. there, and so if you know, frankly, if even lawyers who've been you know, working in this area for years can't quite, can't always say that that's, is definitely, that's definitely a in the public. Yeah, then, you know, frankly, who can? Yeah. And it's it's one of the big challenges, I think, for, the, for any legislator looking at this is to try and kind of how do you tackle that um, without overhauling your whole whistleblowing law, which maybe is another thing that needs to be Well, that's, to a, yeah, again, another separate podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, moving on to what the Women and Equality Select Committee think needs to be done in respect of NDA. So they've been looking at this issue um, in terms of particularly discrimination cases. That's what their report focuses on. And it came out in mid early mid-June of 2019 and they have made several recommendations having taken evidence from a number of experts and read submissions from a number of experts and interested parties and in terms of their recommendations Beth what do you think are the kind of top recommendations that they've made? So I think it's worth just saying that this is the the latest in a series of papers which have made recommendations about the use of NDAs and it's in fact the second paper to come out of the Women Equality Select Committee because they did an inquiry last year in 2018 into sexual harassment in the workplace and in their 
report on that, they um, made a number of recommendations around NDAs. And the government since then has launched a consultation into the use of NDAs. So there are a number of papers, as well as the, the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission has also uh, published a series of recommendations around sexual harassment in the workplace, which includes recommendations around NDAs. So there's there are a number of kind of recommendations floating around, um, none of which have yet been no. brought into force. But just on the latest um, set of recommendations from the Select Committee, I think the ones that really grabbed my attention were around corporate governance mm. and requiring employers to make um, sexual, to sort of bring sexual harassment and NDAs and surrounding issues up to board level and say, actually, this is a corporate governance issue and there has to be someone on the board who is responsible for the for overseeing the use of NDAs. Somebody has to be a director who's responsible for ensuring that when they use, their use is appropriate. Um, requiring companies to nominate a director to be responsible for reviewing all settlement sums and monitoring their, the appropriateness of settlement sums. And requiring them to have a director who has overall responsibility for anti-discrimination and harassment policies, including learning lessons from how previous such cases were handled. So I think bringing and it's something that we've talked about quite a lot is bringing these issues right up to board level making them really have an impact on the bottom line and saying actually this is a corporate governance issue it's not an HR issue although obviously HR would be involved but it is a it is a board level issue and I think that you know, I think that seems like a sensible recommendation to me to actually make sure that companies are taking these issues seriously um, and you know that where NDAs are being used and sometimes they are appropriate and I, for what it's worth, don't think a total ban is helpful or appropriate but I think making sure that they are used appropriately and having that as a board level issue, a senior management issue is really a sensible recommendation. Yeah, I agree with that. It's kind of looking at it on a much broader basis than just specifically targeting you know, what you do around wording of NDAs mm. and it, it's really looking at tackling it and also I think if you tackle it at board level even if you just tackle NDAs at board level, although there's also recommendations to tackle discrimination and harassment more widely, you will hopefully tackle the underlying conduct and yes. shift culture, which I think that doesn't necessarily happen with tinkering the, around the edges of exactly what can and can't go into an NDA clause itself. Exactly. I think, you know, yeah, I think tackling NDAs is part of the and is part of the bigger picture, but actually, you know, it's, it's the underlying conduct that is the issue. Yeah. And just to pick up on a couple of other things that they've said, um, neither of which are brand new in terms of the discussion on this topic, but they have very clearly stated that the government should legislate to ensure that NDAs can't be used to prevent legitimate discussion of allegations of unlawful discrimination or harassment um, and in the public interest consider how to stop their use to cover up allegations of unlawful discrimination, but while protecting the rights of victims to be able to allow them to make a choice to move on with their lives... They have gone on to say that legitimate purposes include discussing potential claims with other alleged victims or potential victims and supporting victims through that trauma, which we think is quite important. And Beth and I were having a chat about this before the podcast about how, you know, if you as someone who has signed an NDA see something happening to someone else and you see that it's the same conduct, it could make a big difference to that person if you are able to talk to them about it and help them and support them in whatever internal process or external process they might bring. Yeah, and one of the really difficult issues that the committee, I think, were grappling with was 
repeat offenders in this. Mm-hmm. So where you have someone, I mean, you know, the the sort of big bad example is Harvey Weinstein, who you know does this uh, apparently allegedly. There's this conduct which is ongoing and repeated, and you know each each victim as they come forward is asked to sign an NDA and he's allowed to carry on, and that's the kind of, it's that sort of repeated conduct that they're trying to look at here and trying to think about how, while allowing the sort of freedom of contract, to continue to so allowing the victim some options, they also try and ensure that there's not that sort of ongoing repeated conduct. Yeah, and another it's a very thing, difficult one, I think. Yeah, it's, it is very hard, but that's. A thrust of a lot of the recommendations on this are about stopping the concealment of conduct. Mm. And I think that's going to be so important. Really difficult to do, and I don't envy the person that's going to have to draft any of this legislation, but culturally, if you can stop the culture of concealment, you will ultimately go a long way to stopping the conduct in the first place. I think that's right. And I think one of the other things is that... um, when we talked about whether they whether victims ever want to have an NDA, mm. whether it's ever in their interests, one of the things we often talk about is their ability to go and find a new job and their ability to carry on with their lives and find a new job. And I think um, part of that, there is some cultural change that also needs to happen in terms of saying, OK, well, you have been a victim of sexual harassment and that shouldn't impact on your yeah. ability to find a new job. Yeah. So it's about sort of transparency and in fact that comes out in in the report where they highlight the fact that the tribunal service now have online searchable judgments database and there is a concern around that 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 means that people who have brought claims whether that's discrimination or harassment or another type of employment tribunal claim will be publicly there on the record and their name will be there now there are uh, rules in the employment tribunal system to anonymise the details of a claimant but it's not quite as straightforward as just asking them to anonymise your name you have to demonstrate that there's a reason that you should get that uh, protection and some so people especially litigants in person so someone's bringing the claim on their own behalf wouldn't that. know that yeah. they could do that and, and it's not very clear as part of the tribunal process that the, no. the judgment is just going to go up on the website no. and be publicly searchable. And I even you know, if you fill in a claim form online, there's not a tick box that says I want um, to apply for my identity to be you know kept private mm. anonymised, um, which you know arguably would make a difference because then if someone's unrepresented, then you know then they're they aware could that tick that, that box. Possibility. And yes, the judge will then have to hear the parties on the matter, but at least that person's aware that's an option. Mm. Um, so there's, that's a concern that was brought up in the report. Um, uh, and that links back into one of the others. The other sort of thrust of the recommendations is around access to justice yeah, and the complexities issue. of the tribunal system. Um, and the employment tribunal process was first introduced introduced as an, the industrial tribunal. Mm. It was supposed to be kind of informal, for user friendly, really user friendly. <laughs> and it it has because of the complexities of the law and the I fact don't find that, it user friendly. No, I mean I yeah. know how to use it. <laughs> yes. I think it you know it's it is complicated and and that's partly because the law is yeah. complicated. And the law is necessarily complicated in some ways because mm. of the protections it's seeking to provide, but it's not easy for someone to navigate. No. And that means that actually sort of the threat of employment tribunal proceedings and the potential costs implications of employment tribunal proceedings lead people to settle where they might not otherwise yeah. settle and accept NDAs where they might not otherwise yeah. accept NDAs. So it's, it's uh, I think access to justice is a really key part mm. of the 
way of fixing this. Yeah, I agree. As far as it's fixable. And the other thing they touch on, which was touched on in the broader report on harassment in the workplace, is around the awards, the competition awards that are made in discrimination and harassment cases, and the fact that at the moment they are at a relatively low level, and and that that is not enough of a deterrent for companies and employers to put in place adequate measures which seek to prevent harassment. And there's a real sort of recognition that these issues haven't been historically taken as seriously as, for example, financial misconduct or, um, you know, there was when GDPR came in last year, massive, you know, massive rush to comply. Yeah. Appropriately and rightly. I'm not saying you shouldn't comply with GDPR. But but that actually these issues aren't and haven't been taken as seriously by employers. There was a 20 million euro potential penalty people might think differently about NDAs and harassment Um, one of the other recommendations which I think is really sensible albeit how you police it in practice um, could be difficult is the requirement that if someone's being asked to sign an NDA they will get legal advice that will be paid for by the employer in a settlement agreement I think where you get into more complicated issues is how much that legal advice will cost how much the employer will contribute and whether that's reasonable one of the recommendations is that where the employer and employee are seeking to negotiate the non-disclosure agreement terms the legal advice on the negotiation should be paid for by the employer and that obviously leads into a debate about well you know how long's a piece of string? How long will that negotiation go on for? But hopefully, in practice, it will actually just encourage employers to be quite pragmatic about what they do and don't want to include in mm. a non-disclosure agreement, and be more sensible about it. And not yeah, and also silly to, provisions. to make them think at the outset: Do we need an NDA at, at all? all? Yeah, um, because I think there is, you know, they they are included as standard in settlement agreements. Sometimes in situations when, frankly, they're not yeah. needed, where there is nothing really confidential about yeah. the arrangement. I think making people think about it before just yeah. putting one in standard practice is a good idea and um, there's also been proposals around the wording that's used and really this is a, the point about making it clear and easy for everybody to understand what they're signing up to and what the effect of that is so they have um, made provisions that if you are going to include non-disclosure agreements their recommendations are that the wording should be in clear english and that there should be some standard drafting available. And they've asked the government to legislate on that within two years. So not super quick, but hopefully within a couple of years, we might have some clearer legislation around yeah, and this I think, issue. I mean, I think clarity is really the key in all these things, yeah. that actually NDAs do have a purpose. Um, but everyone who is signing one needs to understand what it is they are signing and why and what purpose it's serving and what yeah. is protecting and I think that's where it's kind of fallen down, really. Yeah. That's where the controversy comes from, is that they've been used in some, not all circumstances, but in some circumstances inappropriately. Yeah. And, that people- and before we finish this podcast, probably just one thing that we would both end by saying, which is that NDAs are part of a bigger picture and a bigger problem, and that solving the NDA problem alone will not solve the sexual harassment problem, although they, it's important to address the NDA issue. But as was highlighted, I think, really well in a blog by Darren Newman, who um, is on Twitter. I don't know what his handle is, if we can... I think it's Daz Newman. Daz Newman. Anyway, he writes a lot of really interesting things about employment law, and he flagged something which we've discussed in the past as well, which is that really what you also need to focus on 
your focus on is tackling the underlying conduct. And you can't just look at the silencing for that conduct, because whilst some conduct, you could argue, would not have happened if it had not been silenced, actually there will be perpetrators of harassment out there who are oblivious to whether or not it can be covered up at the time they do it. Let's be honest, a lot of people do it while they're drunk. And um, an NDA or the inability to get one wouldn't necessarily have stopped that happening in the first place. So we shouldn't lose sight of actually the conduct in the first place and what needs to happen culturally in society and by employers to yeah. try and stop that and conduct. And a better understanding happening. of what is and isn't acceptable yeah. behaviour. Acceptable, yeah. Which is where we see a lot of problems arising in the first place. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you want any more information about the issue that we've been discussing, then you can go on our website. We've got some links to articles and documents, or please get in touch with us at info at cm-murray.com to ask us any questions. Thanks for listening.